Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. There's this common complaint about politicians that they're not connected enough to regular people. And even the fact that we don't think of politicians as regular people says a lot. And that's because many politicians have very separate lives from their constituents. They get good health care. They tend to be a lot richer. So if you're a senator with a million dollars, you're a relatively poor senator. But what if politicians could live like the people that they represent for a bit and feel what it's like not to have money at the end of the month or deal with crappy health care or even send your kids to public schools, which a lot of politicians don't do? Paul Bloom is the author of the new book Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion. And he's a professor of psychology at Yale. And he argues that our love of empathy, of politicians who profess not just that they understand our situation, but that our stress is their stress, that our disappointment is their disappointment, that does a huge disservice to us. Some kinds of empathy, he says, have their place. But in a lot of cases, empathy itself hurts good decision-making. One sense of empathy is in terms of understanding, just knowing what it's like, knowing what people want. And I think any good politician needs a lot of that. You need to understand uh, what makes people happy, what they're looking for. You need that to persuade them and also just to do good in the world. Of course, any bad politician, any, any dictator, any demagogue also benefits from that kind of empathy. But, but that's kind of necessary. The sort of empathy I'm arguing against involves shared feelings, feeling people's pain feeling their suffering. Which is a classic thing sometimes the politicians yep. say, right? I feel your pain. And they, you, we've literally had politicians say such things. And the idea is maybe I don't really have the pain myself, but I recognize that you have it. And somehow I can so deeply internalize that, that I understand what it's like to struggle with a job or to not have a job, whatever it is. That's right. And Bill Clinton, I think, famously right. said that in response to an AIDS activist, I feel your pain. And, you know, he looked like he really meant it. I think that if you look at moral decisions, moral actions, intimate relations, the whole, the whole shebang, this sort of empathy is corrosive. It makes for bad parents and bad doctors. It makes for bad decisions, bad choices about charity, and, and I think ultimately bad leadership. What you really want in a leader, uh, somebody who has any power, is somebody who could try to think ahead, to reason statistically, think in terms of cost and benefits of helping the most people. And empathy works like a spotlight. It zooms you in on a single individual. I mean, one way I put it in my book is it's because of empathy that the leaders in this world and also many citizens care a lot more about a baby stuck in a well than they do about climate change. And it's not as if the effects of this are harmless. It's not as if empathy maybe just leaves us a bit of bias or a bit of misapplied attention. The effects of this sort of empathic reaction could be and, and often are terrible. When countries like ours go to war or when we treat vast segments of our population horribly, Often we're motivated by empathic concern for some sufferers. Some of our worst laws in the criminal justice system are motivated by empathy for innocent victims. Some of the stupidest laws we have, the cruelest laws, are named after dead girls. And I think a good leader could step outside that and reason rationally. Are there examples of things that that jump out to you when you think these are sort of laws that came out of empathy 
and uh, in your view, at least, it was a mistake. Well, I'll take a specific case, a, a, a kind of well-known case, which is the case of Willie Horton. So some yes. of, some people listening to this will be old enough to remember that Michael Dukakis, the governor of Massachusetts, running for president. And uh, what came out during his election run was he had a furlough program in Massachusetts where prisoners were released. And one prisoner, Willie Horton, a large African-American man, assaulted somebody, raped somebody else. And the furlough program was shut down and was seen as an embarrassing mistake. And it was one of the reasons why we never really had a president Dukakis. But it turns out that the furlough program was making a positive difference. Even factoring in those criminals who would offend, there were fewer people being murdered, fewer being assaulted, fewer being raped. But you could easily feel empathy for somebody who was attacked. You can't feel empathy for somebody who would have been attacked but wasn't statistically because right. of a program. Right. I, you know, I um, have vague memories of uh, the Willie Horton incident, and I believe that Dukakis's opponent in the presidential election, George H.W. Bush, ran ads featuring kind of like a mugshot or a very unflattering picture of Willie Horton, basically saying, look, I mean, Dukakis let a rapist out of prison. Is this who you want to be your president? That's exactly right. Willie Horton was was actually raised by Dukakis's opponent in the primaries, Al Gore, but uh, George Bush took it up. Hmm. And, and that illustrates another fact about empathy, supported both by laboratory studies and also common sense, which is your empathy flows very powerfully for people who are look like you, come from your country, your friends, your family, your skin color, attractive, young, babies, teenage girls. Empathy is very difficult to get for people who look very different from you, who frighten you. And uh, the fact that it's hard to get people concerned about issues like mass incarceration is that the people who are incarcerated don't tend to look like the people making the decisions. They tend to have done bad things or somewhat bad things. And so empathy shuts down. I think we end up with a far more just society, more just leaders, if they combine reasoned decision with sort of more distant compassion, wanting to make the world a better place. Is it possible to feel people's pain less, to like turn it down some, you know, to, I mean, obviously, if you're, what your argument is, don't be so guided by empathy, then to some degree, you'd like to minimize it because if it's very, very strong, you know, emotion, it, it can be hard to ignore it. It's a great question. And in some way, it's a sort of parallel question to There are many findings that were biased by implicit racial biases. Even if we want to be egalitarian and fair, we find in a lot of evidence that we favor favor those of our own race. We favor attractive people over unattractive people and so on. And then the question is, what do we do about it? And in the case of empathy, there are different options. One very specific suggestion, which is quite interesting, is there's a lot of research suggesting that mindfulness meditation and meditative practices actually make people more compassionate, but less empathic. Hmm. And so somebody suffering from burnout, a doctor, a therapist who feels too much empathy and so isn't very good at his or her job, might benefit from meditative practices. But I think in general, there should be more of a cultural shift. What I'd like to see become taboo is somebody arguing for a policy who then drags out some innocent victim. We should save Obamacare because look at this poor schnook. Look how sad he is. Look at his life. Or we should demolish Obamacare because look at this portion of <laughs> Right, right. There's always going to be, if you're talking about leadership in terms of government, any broad, interesting policy is going to have winners and losers. 
inevitably in the short term. People are going to suffer no matter what you do. Gun control, affirmative action, abortion. And so we should try our best not to be swayed by pictures and videos and sad stories and ask cold-blooded questions like, which healthcare system is going to help the most people and provide the best health care and so on? And tell our politicians, don't give me these stories. Here's the problem I have with that. I think that somebody who said, listen, everybody, I'm not going to focus on this abduction case or forget the case of Willie Horton, you know, forget this, the case of this rapist. I really want to focus your attention on, on this chart here. And this, this yes. shows you, this shows you who would really be helped by this healthcare law or who would really be helped by this uh, recidivism law or whatever it is. I cannot imagine that that person would be elected. I don't feel like that's how we elect people for good or for bad. So I wonder if you're saying, here's the ideal scenario, but I don't know that we can achieve it. I'm sort of saying that. I agree with what you're saying. If I ran a charity, I would certainly use empathic appeals myself. Mm -hmm. If I was a demagogue and trying to instill hatred against Muslims or Mexicans, I would use empathy for victims of people who've lost their jobs or victims of crimes and so on. It's always there. It's like a salt that adds flavor to everything, and it's very tempting. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking with Paul Bloom, a professor of psychology at Yale and author of the new book, Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion. Do you think that if we jettisoned empathy to some degree, that we would have less nepotism, parochialism, nationalism, than in general we are used to? Because, I mean, I think one of the appeals of all of those things is you feel the pain more of people that you know or people who are like you than you do some girl in a refugee camp 5,000 miles away from you. And, and I mean, would that be a good thing? To, I mean, because we think of nationalism as, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's people who think of it as bad and some people who think it is really, really good to support your own first. But would there be more, less sort of supporting your own if we were less empathic? There would be less. I think that empathy tends to exaggerate and increase our biases. Empathy is an emotional system that's extremely vulnerable to bias, more than most. And so if we were to sort of strip empathy from our brains or more plausibly just have a bit less of it in public discourse, I think we would be better able to appreciate that a Mexican life and an American life from the grand scheme of things are worth the same. Hmm. And even though somebody is not pleasant to look at, maybe they're homeless, maybe they're, they disgust you, still they're a person. And even though empathy is silent, that doesn't take away from their, from their rights, from their importance. I don't think it would go away. There are all sorts of other cognitive systems we have that, and these also reflect all sorts of biases, and not all biases are bad. So I think it's wrong if I were to favor white people over black people. If I were to argue, I, I'm just going to patronize white stores and give money to white people over black, that seems wrong. But it doesn't seem wrong if I say, I'm going to value my own children over your children. Mm-hmm. I have that preference, and I actually, I'm going to, I sort of going to sign up for that preference. I like right. that preference. Right. I am not ashamed of that preference. And I think some preferences towards friends and families are so ingrained in our psychology, so much part of the way we think, that it's asking too much to try to reject them. Hmm. But racial preferences, I have a very different feeling about. And national preferences are complicated. 
I think there are rational arguments for favoring your own country over others. It just is how the world works better. But I think we take it way too far. I think the world would be much better if we stop obsessing so much about national boundaries. So on the other side of this whole argument um, is... I think some pretty powerful arguments the other way. So you could argue, for example, that a lot of terrible things that have happened in history, slavery, the Holocaust, would have been averted or uh, ended more quickly if people had had some empathy for the people who were suffering under those regimes, you know, in those situations and felt like, you know, I'm not just going to think about me and I'm okay right now. I'm going to think about the people who are sort of on the receiving end of all this pain. And what would it be like to be one of those people? But if more people had thought that way, imagine how much more quickly some of those terrible times could have ended. I think what you're saying is exactly right. If, you know, if slave owners had rich empathy for slaves, they wouldn't be slave owners anymore. Mm -hmm. If concentration camp guards had empathy for the inmates, uh, the Holocaust would have never happened. I agree with that. It's just empathy doesn't work that way. Empathy is, is, is almost always stronger for your side than for the other side, for your family than for strangers. And in fact, when you look at the most evil institutions in the world, it's not as if they were sort of anti-empathic. The people who ran them, the slave owners, the concentration camp guards, were not cold-blooded psychopaths. They were richly empathic people who had friends and families who they loved and so on. They just didn't empathize with the people they were enslaving and killing. And this is how empathy works. Mm. So people might bring up, you say, well, you know, what about a movie like, like Schindler's List? Doesn't that show you how empathy could be extended towards innocent victims of the concentration camps. But for every Schindler's List, there's A Birth of a Nation, which is a movie that inspired tremendous support for the KKK Hmm. by telling stories about innocent white victims, white women brutalized by blacks. So empathy is an unreliable moral guide. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying, too, is anybody can deploy it. They, They don't have to be good people. It can be not good people, too. That's right. I mean, I think that's a profound point. Many people, and in my experience, particularly liberals, tend to think empathy is on their side. And if only they could kind of ramp up the empathy on the other side, then everybody would agree with them. But if you look at real political debates, actual ones, it's not a question of whether to empathize. It's a question of who to empathize with. Do you empathize with the parent of a toddler shot by a stray bullet and then want more gun control? Or do you empathize with a woman who's raped because she's not has no right to have a weapon to defend herself? Mm-hmm. With the Syrian immigrant who really wants a place to live, the refugee, or with the person who's going to lose his job because a foreigner is going to take it away from him? So politicians push back and forth, finding somebody to get you to em- empathize with them. And this is true even with sort of the great evils you were talking about before. Slave owners, for instance, would give empathic arguments for the institution of slavery, one of which being that they needed to take care of these people who were unable to take care of themselves. Hmm. Well, it also speaks to the fact that sometimes when terrible events happen, part of the argument that the aggressors make is that these aren't people, really. They aren't as much people as we are. You know, so being cruel to them is okay. You don't need to feel empathy for them because they're not 
re, you know, they're subhuman and we don't feel empathy as much for, you know, like snails or, you know what I mean? I think that is part of, that's part of the technique too, is that they, these people don't deserve empathy. I think you're right. I think dehumanization plays a pretty serious role in a lot of these, uh, a lot of these horrible events. I, I got into a disagreement once with a prominent psychologist. We were talking about uh, the the conflict between uh, Israel and Palestine. This was over over Gaza at the time, and he just said, "Wow, if only each side had more empathy." But my response, which I really do believe, is each side had tremendous empathy. The the Israelis had enormous empathy for at the time suffering of Israelis who mm -hmm, were killed mm -hmm. by the Palestinians. The Palestinians had extraordinary empathy for their their friends and families who they believe were killed and and it falsely imprisoned by the Israelis. There was no shortage of strong feelings. There just wasn't empathy for the other side because that's not how empathy works. If we were gods and could feel empathy for every individual at the same time regardless of their relationship with us, maybe I wouldn't be against empathy. Right. But empathy works as it does. And so this is why we should seek out better alternatives. So if you distilled your message down and you thought about how to sort of turn it into practical advice for people who make decisions in their everyday lives, I wonder what your advice would be. Because a lot of what we do all the time is say, like to a little kid, you know, don't hit Jenny. Because how would you feel if you were Jenny and you got hit, right? I mean, that, that's the argument. We, empathy comes in all the time when we're trying to teach people to be better people. Um, so what kind of practical advice would you have? So you're, you're actually raising a good point. So there are cases where empathy plays a good role. And you mentioned one of them, where if you're insensitive to suffering in another person, a blast of empathy, you know, you're your parent telling you, look, how would you feel if somebody said that to you? Mm -hmm. Can't actually play some role. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to kids, and certainly when it comes to adults, I guess the message I would have is don't listen to your heart. I mean, we now have, there's like a thousands of years of philosophy and, and current events, but also a lot of psychological neuroscience research that says your heart is, is biased and enumerate and irrational and short-sighted. And I think we should acknowledge, explicitly acknowledge that the things that sway us, the stories, the pictures, may not reliably map onto the right things to do. That there's a difference between what feels right in the short term and what actually is right. Hmm. And knowing this won't magically make the lure of empathy go away any more than knowing that I have implicit biases will make those biases disappear. But it helps. Yeah, It helps people during their slow, deliberative decisions to say, you know, I see that this person who wants me to support going to war has shown me quite a gruesome QuickTime video, which is very upsetting to me. But maybe that's not a good reason. Maybe I want to hear more about how many people are suffering and how could we make a difference by responding and so on. Paul Bloom is the author of the new book, Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion. He's also a psychology professor at Yale. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. If you want to 
read more about Bloom's case against empathy and the arguments of some very smart people who disagree with him, we've got a link to the Boston Review, which put together their energetic disputes. That's on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. In 2014, a strange thing happened during the confirmation of a political appointee. Now, the job the person wanted is one that most of us pay no attention to, ambassador to Argentina. But the headline around this nomination was magnetic. The nominee had never actually been to Argentina. President Obama didn't seem too worried. He'd made the nomination and he got it through. He had actually nominated an ambassador to Hungary the year before, whose main accomplishment was that she was a producer of the soap opera, The Bold and the Beautiful. So why were these people nominated? Well, because they and people that they associate with were big money political contributors. The argument against that way of doing things, and clearly President Obama did not start the trend of giving out political favors, nor will he probably be the last person to do it, The argument against it is, we want real experts making decisions for the country, not people who golf with the president or who got him elected. Parag Khanna is a senior research fellow at the National University of Singapore, and he says, there's a name for the sort of experts that we should be embracing more, technocrats. But what America's done, in his view, is reject technocrats and label them something else, something that often feels like an epithet. Technocrats is not a synonym for elites. Otherwise, we wouldn't need the word technocrats. Kana says that what we can ask technocrats to do is find pragmatic solutions to problems. But the rumbling that he's been hearing from the public is kind of different. Down with the technocrats, out with the technocrats. Uh, you know, this, re, re, Trump's election represents uh, a rejection of Obama and his sort of soulless technocrats. That's just nonsense because Obama didn't have a lot of technocrats either. America, quite frankly, doesn't have a lot of technocrats. And to be fair, the labeling of career civil service folks as elites or useless bureaucrats, that's not new. In 1976, a presidential candidate staked his candidacy on the claim that bureaucrats were ruining communities in all sorts of ways, including things like enforcing school busing. Now, that candidate lost in the primary. He didn't even make it to the general, but his message had staying power. And so did the messenger. His name was Ronald Reagan. I've met Americans, and I would suggest that if there's going to be any forced busing, it ought to be a periodic forced busing of the Washington bureaucracy out into the country to meet the real people. argues not that that sort of rhetoric isn't attractive, but that it isn't effective, and that it's time for something new. In a new book, Technocracy in America, Kana says that places like Singapore and Switzerland, and to a lesser extent Germany, which rely more than we do on technocrats, have reaped tremendous benefits in the last few decades. Kana spoke with me from Singapore, and he claims, provocatively, that America today far better represents degenerative politics than good governance. 
So the World Bank, for example, has something called the Worldwide Governance Indicators. They look at 36 metrics of issues like political participation, accountability of the government, the, you know, freedoms and rights of people, civic rights, social rights, economic rights, um, you know, progress in terms of um, uh, per capita income. We should really be looking uh, not just at the uh, average income, but the median income, since, of course, uh, the United States, like many other countries, is, is quite unequal in terms of income distribution. Um, it's things like public safety, education standards, and attainment. Very, very prosaic, mundane, measurable things that all in all, all taken together, add up to the good life. And if you take a broad sort of selection of these measures, um, again, it's been known for quite some time. I, I documented this pretty thoroughly in my first book, uh, The Second World, about 10 years ago, that the U.S. is declining in these metrics, while other countries, uh, take former Soviet republics in Eastern Europe, for example, countries in East Asia like Korea or Taiwan or um, Singapore, are rising uh, quite rapidly. And so it's not that there is this full displacement going on, but remember one thing, like any other bad habit, the further you fall behind, the further you let it all hang out, the longer it takes to, to rebuild and to regroup and to get back on top. If you buy into the idea of technocrats, they shouldn't be first and foremost Republican or Democratic cheerleaders. They should be trying to figure things out like, how do we get the most people, the best health care at the cheapest price, no matter what you call the plan and no matter how much interest group lobbying there's been? Technocrats are the folks with their heads down. They're problem solving. If you don't know how to actually administer and run policies through large bureaucracies, you're not a technocrat. You're an interloper. And our government is full of them. So a technocrat not only has the pedigree, but they also know how to get things done. And I dare say that's our great deficiency. No country has as many smart people as America. That's not our problem. Our problem is translating them to getting things done. If you're interested in what one alternative system looks like, consider Switzerland. Kana says it's based on an idea that American politicians have long embraced, a team of rivals. They have a seven-member federal executive council. Those seven individuals come from three or four different political parties. It's formed through a coalition, so it's representative of the, the balance of power within the parliament. There is, it rotates, there's a first among equals, but it rotates every, uh, you know, sort of a cycle of, of one year. So there's reciprocity. If there's stalwarts and holdouts, um, you know, who are, say, misbehaving or blocking consensus among the seven, guess what? You know, the position's going to rotate in a year, and then everyone's going to gang up on you. And if anyone knows anything about Swiss politics, again, it's a small country, but they have serious, you know, they have divisive political issues. It's a very diverse country. They're dealing with a lot of turbulence in Europe, and yet they still manage to always take smart, long-term decisions. Now, some of the most technocratic countries in the world are not really democracies in the same way that the U.S. is, like Singapore. But Kana says if the U.S. could incorporate more technocrats into our brand of democracy, our leaders might not be as flashy, but they could be more effective. Here's his vision. Quite frankly, it's more democratic than what we have now because one of the steps in this picture that, that we're painting is that you would have mandatory voting because countries like Australia and Belgium and others do have that. Singapore has mandatory voting. And by the way, not everyone votes for the ruling party. Uh, they win a lot of seats, but uh, it's, uh, it's across the spectrum. So um, the fact is that we should have mandatory voting because once people really do have to vote, they might pay more attention you know, to, the, to the information. So that's a bit of behavioral nudging, uh, if you will. 
thrown in there. But uh, you would have this collective presidency in the executive branch. You would have a multi-party system, right? Again, there's nothing in the Constitution that says we should only have two political parties. All of the countries that are ranked higher than the United States in terms of the quality of their democracy are multi-party parliamentary systems. So I would, uh, be, I would I feel that we should have three or four political parties that hold each other much more accountable. I have advocated replacing the Senate with what I call an assembly of governors. I believe governors are much more competent administrators and much more knowledgeable about the kinds of policies that we need on a national scale, and, and that we should have really two governors for each state, one that's in the state capital, one that's in Washington. So I kind of fleshed that out. I believe we should have a Supreme Court who's tasked with thinking about constitutional modifications. Obviously, all branches of government and, and the public have to be involved in constitutional modifications, but the Supreme Court and its members on the bench shouldn't always just be taking the fifth uh, about how they feel we need to evolve our constitution. So you don't have to buy Switzerland. You don't have to buy Singapore. You certainly don't have to buy China. You don't, really have, you don't have to believe that China is a better government because it's not. But you can definitely learn from how other countries do certain things. And it is a myth uh, to think that we can't do them. Parag Khanna is a senior research fellow at the National University of Singapore and the author of Technocracy in America. You can find our discussion with Parag Khanna or any of today's stories about leadership by grabbing our podcast. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. One of the hardest things for a leader to do is change minds. President Obama said that a real regret of his was not convincing more of the country to embrace his health care plan. Sometimes you've got leaders who just completely fail to make inroads or who get left behind by ordinary people. So the Catholic Church ultimately failed to convince people that the sun revolved around the earth. And on an issue like gay marriage, ordinary Americans have shifted really quickly. Some of it is a generational shift. And lots of mainstream politicians have followed their constituents. But when it comes to climate change, American leaders are all over the map. Today, there's no greater threat to our planet than climate change. Well, I'm not a big believer in man-made climate change. It could be some impact, but I don't believe it's uh, a devastating impact. The overwhelming majority of scientists are saying climate change is real. Climate change is caused by human activity. My point is God's still up there. And the arrogance of people who think that we, human beings, would be able to change what he is doing in the climate is, to me, outrageous. That was President Obama, President-elect Trump, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, and Senator James Inhofe of Oklahoma. About half of Americans think that climate change is due to human activity. The other half either think it's natural warming or maybe there isn't any climate change at all. But a solid majority of Americans, so more than 60 percent, think we'll have to change our way of life because of climate change and that rough times are ahead. More fires, droughts, floods, beach erosion. Michael Ranney at the University of California, Berkeley, has spent years looking at how people process different scientific concepts, including climate change. I asked him, how do leaders balance the fact that people aren't really sure that climate change is real, but 
they're concerned that it's going to hurt their world. I think it's interesting to compare the United States to what I call the peer nations, which are other industrialized, post-industrial nations. I mean, if, if you realize it, what, 196 countries have signed on to the Paris Accord, then why is it that our nation is one of the few that's thinking of unsigning uh, on that document? So there's particularly an American problem. Uh, it's a kind of an American exceptionalism. And that's one of the reasons why I got into this, that there's something peculiar about the United States and our history. But I also think it's it's one of the difficulties of having political system that is geared more toward short-term thinking. That is that if, you, if you're not going to be in office in seven years or five years or three years, you know, depending on what, where you are in the federal government or something like that, then your approach is a little bit more short-term. It's a little like our corporate uh, structure where many people are focusing on the value of, of a particular stock and equity until they stop being CEO, that person stops being CEO. So the incoming uh, president, of course, uh, Donald Trump, has said that um, he thinks that climate change may be uh, a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese. Do you think, or what do you think that means for America's and Americans' acceptance of um, climate science? Well, I believe that Donald Trump has taken multiple positions on that. Um, so in the uh, one of the debates with Hillary Clinton, he denied saying that it was a hoax, and yet clearly it was on a Twitter feed. Um, he also has, um, at least his public persona, has a kind of a muddled understanding of the science. So I can, uh, I can give you a, a, a basically a quote that he gave in, I believe it was May of 2016, May 5th, where he was speaking to an audience in West Virginia. And he said, basically, I said, basically to the climate scientists, wait a minute. So if I take hairspray... So if I take hairspray and if I spray it in my apartment, which is all sealed, and you're telling me that affects the ozone layer. Yes. I say, no way, folks. No way. So, you know, I study how scientific information can change people's minds. So if he really believes that, what does it mean for his understanding of, like, molecules? I mean, does he think that uh, the molecules that are in the hairspray that, that, uh, that hurt those in the or that they just sort of fall to the ground and then his housekeeper sweeps them up later? Or does he think that his apartment really is sealed and that would be very dangerous for someone who builds buildings, right? Because, like, the V in HVAC is for ventilation systems, right? So <laughs> it, uh, it would probably cause carbon monoxide poisoning, which might account for this comment, actually. <laughs> uh, but basically, you know, he's sort of suggesting that molecules that are in his domicile can't go anywhere, whereas, in fact, you know, molecules do. And, you know, every breath I take in, purportedly has at least one molecule from the last breath of Julius Caesar. So you have to wonder, you know, what sort of, of scientific model is he working on such that, that he thinks that? So I know you've come up with all sorts of ways to explain climate change to people. Um, you, you can explain it in a few hundred words, um, in 35 words, in a haiku. Um, but I want to ask about the science of climate change versus the science of other things that we deal with or we think about on a regular basis. Because I don't know that most people know 
how to explain why the world is is round, for example. But uh, they pretty much accept it as, as being round. Um, or, or in a very different example, if you went to the doctor and the doctor said, look, you've got cancer, you need to take chemotherapy, I don't know that most people would sit the doctor down and insist on understanding like the biology and the chemistry of how chemo works before they accepted it as real. So why is climate change so different? Well, I don't think it's necessarily so different. Like uh, any physician who's worth her or his salt would probably at least give you some sense of why mm. the chemicals are necessary. And, you know, the haiku or the 35 words or the 400 mm. words, this is just the tip of the, uh, of the iceberg, so to speak, of a lot of science that goes on underneath it. And so, you know, um, that's also true in, in the, the doctor's office. That is, it's a poor patient who just accepts, you know, the first diagnosis and the first treatment in, in uh, especially, you know, cancer and so forth, because there are often options and so forth. So I don't think it's that different. On the other hand, I think that there's also a more proximal problem when you've just been told you need chemotherapy, right? I mean, there's a chance that you're going to die in your lifetime from this thing that's happening in your body. Right. Whereas the problem with global warming is you really have to think longer term mm -hmm. about uh, your older self, your children, or maybe your friends' children's or your cousins, or mm -hmm. plants you like, species you enjoy, uh, animals that you like to have frolicking maybe after your death, mountain size that you want to be a little prettier and so mm -hmm. forth. And so, you know, there's a, there's a more of a probabilistic thing. Like, is this going to get me or is this going to get my kid? Right, or maybe, right. you know, there's Pollyannish thinking where, oh, well, we'll just grow bananas in Montana, right. you know, and who knows if there'll be bees around to do any pollination or whatnot. And so there's a lot of wishful thinking involved and a lot of fear. And then there's, there's a patina of greed. So it's what we in psychology referred to as motivated reasoning. I can just tell you a little bit of a story. When I was flying across country, I sat next to a fellow who noticed my slides as I was working on them on my laptop, and he was uh, someone who denied global warming. And I believe a lot of it was from fear, that is that he has three daughters and some grandkids and he's worried about the future. And when I asked him, what he thought was causing Earth to warm up, because he seemed to accept that it was warming, mm -hmm. he said that it was volcanoes and uh, that he thinks there's more volcanic activity. And I said, well, okay, so why is there more volcanic activity now than in the past? He said, well, I don't know. And I said, so I have this mechanistic explanation that explains the change, why we're getting hotter now because of this human-caused increase in greenhouse gases. And yet your explanation does not explain the change. Uh, why would you prefer your explanation to mine, which is clearly just insufficient from like a philosophy of science perspective? And this guy was like an engineer and he owned his own company and, and, and so forth. And he couldn't explain that. And I must say that I think some of it was just from his fear of the future for either his older self or his descendants. Hmm. And also a bit of a financial perspective because he was related to the fossil fuel industry. Mm. And then, you know, as he was getting off the plane, he said, and I also think it's gotten too political. And, you know, that was another sort of key, that he was allying with an identity mm. that um, seemed to think that global warming was not something that should be acceptable. 
And so that, that's, that was inhibiting him from accepting the scientific information. Now, I'm sure that if I had him on a desert island for a couple of weeks, you know, <laughs> within a, within It wasn't a long enough hours, plane flight. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I could turn him. In fact, I, I'm pretty sure I could turn Trump, maybe even Senator Inhofe. You know, you can, you can turn people, but, you know, there's only so much that you can do if people have some sort of fear that's keeping them from accepting it. A sense that it's too expensive, which it's not, as I sort of laid out, that it's it's pretty cheap. Not only that, it would have great health benefits to fix um, you know, global warming as well in terms of, you know, the stuff we're sucking into our lungs and into our waterways and so forth. So, you know, I think that there are a lot of reasons why people deny it and that those will fall away relatively quickly as the science becomes more, uh, you know, 100 percent clear as the effects become greater and something related to what you were pointing out, that there'll be a generational shift. Mm -hmm. That is that one of the reasons that people switch their opinion on gay marriage is that younger people were more accepting of it. They uh, knew more gay people in their lives. And people who were less accepting of it were no longer voting uh, you know, because of mortality. And there's going to be some of that going on in, uh, in global warming as well. There are significant demographics that indicate that, um, you know, eventually it'll be uh, near universal acceptance, in my view. It's just a question of how long and the sooner the better, obviously, in terms of, of fixing the problem. So I'm interested in what you've seen over the course of your career, because we ta I've talked about different kinds of changes in opinion, gay marriage, um, but also is the earth round or is it flat? You know, and other sort of acceptance of, you know, different sort of sorts of realities, scientific or otherwise. What have you seen? Uh, in terms of climate change and, and what's what do you see happening? Well, I see less and less denial of climate change, both among politicians and in the press. That is, there are fewer people that will say, you know, that the science is out. Uh, occasionally people will bring that up, but it's becoming less and less common. And I think that was really a, a difficulty with journalism, and journalists bear some responsibility for that. I've actually taught a bit in the journalism school here at Berkeley on numeracy and such matters. And, you know, sort of the knee-jerk reaction is to have sort of the two sides represented. Right. represented. Right. But, you know, we wouldn't do that with gravity. We'd say, and we found mm. a physicist who does not accept that mm. gravity is occurring, right? right? So uh, I, I think as there's less and less of that pseudo-balance that people are, are coming to accept it. And also I think that the, the physical circumstances are changing. That is, if you get flooding in Miami on a sunny day just because the sea level has risen and, you know, you're getting a little bit of a storm surge or a high tide or something like that, I mean, if all the ice on the planet melted, our sea level would go up by about 214 feet which, of course, would wipe out virtually all of Florida, uh, let alone a lot of the East Coast, cities like New York, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, and places like that. So, so if you, yeah, so if you think about the extreme, now I'm not going to say this is going to happen in the next 10 years or even the century, right? But eventually, if we keep dumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere without abatement, that will likely happen. And so it's uh, if, if that's really an extreme... Uh, we should worry about that. And also, we're seeing droughts. We're seeing fires. I mean, even in the South, in Tennessee and places like that, it was a tinderbox uh, getting near December 1st. Now, in what past did we live in in which there were 
fires going on in that part of the world, you know, that uh, late in the year. So people are getting the message. You know, firefighters know that it's the case that global warming is occurring. The the uh, sizes of, of the fires we're fighting uh, are roughly double, and they're occurring with greater frequency. There's uh, more tinder. There are tree die-offs in the West. You know, when I went back to Colorado recently where I grew up, it was sort of sad to see how many trees had died off. So people are getting a sense uh, across the nation that these effects are occurring. And the, unfortunately, the more that happens, the more minds are going to be changed because unlike evolution, which is sort of a story of our past mm-hmm. and we, how, how we got here, global warming is about our present and our future as well as evidentially from our past. Michael Ranney is a professor of cognitive psychology at the University of California at Berkeley. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Michael Ranney mentioned Miami as a U.S. city that is particularly susceptible to climate change. The University of Miami found that not only is sea level rise happening in Miami, it's speeding up. Used to be three millimeters a year, now it's nine. The chief resilience officer of Miami-Dade County, James Murley, works on helping Miami adapt to climate change. He says in the 20 years that he's lived in the area, the biggest change he sees is the effect of powerful tides. Sometimes it's called uh, sunny day flooding because our citizens are experiencing salt water in the streets and there's been no rain event or any kind of a storm surge. So it obviously leads to questions of, you know, what's happened, what's changing over time. So that that's probably the most noticeable thing. But along with flooded streets, there's politics. The governor of Florida, Rick Scott, doesn't like to answer questions about climate change, and he often says, I'm not a scientist. In 2015, the Florida Center for Investigative Reporting said the governor had banned the Department of Environmental Protection from using the terms climate change and global warming. And Murley says it's hard to get people to worry about something that moves so slowly it's measured in millimeters. People react to events. Matter of fact, it's an event that creates the opportunity, the federal government, and, you know, everyone wants to help the community that's just been heavily damaged by a, any, a storm event or uh, some other activity. And so the funding to do a lot of things happens after these events. And what we need is funding from uh, our, our own resources, but for, certainly from the state and federal government to address some of these things before we have the events. Because as we do that, we'll be building up the resilience and, and uh, other actions to not only protect us from the the catastrophic events, but also the build resilience in for sea level rise. Now, in some ways, sea level rise has moved beyond politics for people in South Florida, and it's tapped into something that's even more important, money. There's huge amounts of money tied up in Miami real estate, and huge numbers of people who have settled in the area hoping for their little piece of paradise. A hundred years ago, the population of Miami-Dade County was about 15,000. Now it's about 2.5 million. And Murley says making Miami a place that people love to come visit, that's crucial. Look, we realize that living and enjoying and visiting South Florida is about some sense of, of uh, what you'll experience there. And if, if we lose that, you know, we'll lose some of the magic of South Florida. So we want people to understand 
we understand there's risk. Uh, we're dealing with our scientists all the time to get better data, uh, and we're, we're adapting. But listen closely to Murley, who knows he's living inside a tough political sandwich, and how he talks about working closely with elected officials. And you'll hear one serious conundrum. You know, I think we don't spend a lot of time uh, going over the details of why things are happening. We're aware of the, of the empirical data that shows we've had these increases. We're aware of the events uh, that we're experiencing. And we're keenly aware of what our scientists are telling us. The question is, if you don't look at the details of why things are happening, can you ever really address them? Or are you just kind of left rattling around inside your toolkit wondering, what might hold back the ocean? Moon over Miami, shine on as we begin. A dream or two that may come true when the tide comes in. We've got a link to a great piece from The New Yorker about Miami's efforts to stay dry and to protect that very pricey real estate. That's at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help this week from Matt Toda. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. And from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, discover, care, believe. Funding for Innovation Hub's environmental and sustainability reporting is provided by the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI, Public Radio International. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1